Um, we are in Mark chapter 8. We have been going through the book of Mark, and we have reached a very important moment uh, today in the book of Mark. This moment is the turning point of the entire book, and I am just stoked um, for today. So Mark 8, we're going to start in verse 22, and we're going to go all the way to verse 37. God's word says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up, and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, So for those of you who are married, I want you to think back to that season in life when you were dating your wife. Do you you remember that time? Some of you? Okay, maybe not. Um, (laughs) uh, Dated your wife or husband. Yes, thank you, Pam, for that clarification. There comes a moment uh, in each dating relationship that sets its mark as a turning point for most couples, a moment that moves the relationship from casual to maybe we're a little bit more serious. And when I was a college minister, I learned that this season, this moment has a term, okay? It's called a DTR. Anybody know what a DTR is? A define the relationship moment, right? Because most relationships have a similar trajectory, right? You and some friends are hanging out, and you see someone, and they say a joke, and you laugh, right? And then there's some kind of camaraderie there where you begin to connect that within this group of friends, you begin to talk to one another. You laugh at each other's jokes. You start to learn little things about them. And as time goes on, you just keep finding reasons to spend time with them, right? Like I had a buddy that took up bird watching because... The girl watched birds, and so he took up bird watching, right? Which I thought was crazy. Like, she's not that cool, bro, okay? 
Um, and then you start doing things like going to coffee. You start talking. You start texting in this day and age. Um, and then maybe back then you wrote letters. I don't know. What is a letter? What is a stamp, right? Um, and then after a while, things start to get a little confusing, right? And you begin to ask questions like, is there something here? What is this? Who are we to each other? I remember for Katie and I, uh, this conversation happened on November, November 5th, 2010. Uh, I was driving to, col- uh, to College Station. I drove to College Station to see her because she went to Texas A&M. Yep. And as I was driving her home, um, I brought it up. And here's what I said. This was not a proud moment for me. Um, I told her, so we've been spending a lot of time together. So it's just become easier for me to tell my friends that you're my girlfriend. And she was like, excuse me? Um, I was like, yeah, lately when people have been asking me if we're official, I've just been saying yes. And so I asked her, when your friends ask you who I am to you, what do you say? And that puts her in an awful spot, doesn't it? Right? I did not handle that the right way. Because her answer to that question, who do you say that I am, is going to determine how we interact with one another going forward. Like if she would have said, well, I just tell them that you're a really, really good friend, right? That changes the dynamic of the relationship. The other option is she could say, oh, well, I like the sound of that. We've been married for 10 years, so that's what happened. Um, But you end that conversation with clarity on the next steps in your relationship. Now, why do I tell you all that? Uh, Because that's where we're at in the Gospels. That was a long way to say this conversation that Jesus and the disciples are going to have is important. It is distinct to determining clarity and who they are and what they are to one another. The book of Mark has 16 chapters, and this marks as the turning point in this book, that the first eight chapters are all about his identity. Who is this man? You see them ask questions like, who talks like that? Who has that kind of authority over demons? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey? And so you see him gather 12 around him, and over and over again in the first half of the book of Mark, he is revealing his identity. And now we're going to hit a moment that is going to change their relationship. It's going to give some clarity, okay, that this moment is the pivot point of the whole book, that the rest of the book isn't so much about who he is, but rather it's what is his mission? What is it that he came to do? And in this moment, in chapter 8, we get the answers to both questions. Who, who is he? And what is his purpose? It's really fascinating. So we'll start in verse 27. Uh, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, long ways away from Jerusalem. It's the, one of the furthest places away from Jewish life that they will get. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? So when you're out on the town, what are the crowds saying? What are people saying about me? And it says, they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elisha, and others, one of the prophets. So when you look at that list of names, we have to ask the question, okay, what do all these men have in common? They are all great men who speak for God. They're great men who speak to God's purposes. They say, Jesus, we think you, they think you might be a prophet. In fact, we think, or they think that you might be the premier prophet. So the word on the street about the identity of Jesus is that he's a really, really great man. Maybe the greatest man ever, okay? Maybe the greatest man that has ever lived. And you know this, that belief 
still holds for much of the crowds today, right? That Jesus is a really great man. Because here's the deal. The majority of non-believers, they aren't anti-Jesus. If you talk to them, they aren't anti-Jesus. They may have issues with us, Christians, or they may have issues with the church, but typically they're not anti-Jesus. They like Jesus. They like the morality that he stands for. They think that he's a really great guy. But that mo- this moment, it's about this next question. Because here's where you get into what really matters. It says, he asked them, who do you? And in Greek, that phrase you, or that word you, it's right at the beginning, right? It's emphasized. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He speaks on behalf of the disciples. He says, we believe that you are the Christ. And we need to understand the impact of that answer. Peter is saying, we don't believe that you're just a prophet. We don't believe that you're just a great teacher. We believe that you are the one that has been sent from God to save us. You are the Christ, the Messiah. Everything in Mark has been building to this moment. That time and time again, Mark has shown us, and we've talked about it, that the disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. And even in this moment, they still don't fully understand the implications of what they just confessed. Okay? So look back at verse 22 in Mark 8. This moment with the blind man is meant to be an analogy for the disciples' current understanding of Jesus. It illustrates the disciples and, and how they see Jesus. So Jesus grabs a blind man. He leads him out of his village, away from his home, away from the familiar, just like Jesus leads the disciples away from Jerusalem and away from their familiar. Jesus spits on his eyes and lays his hand on the blind man. And Jesus asks him, okay, what do you see? And the blind man says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so the blind man was beginning to see, but he couldn't make out exactly what he was seeing. He couldn't see things clearly. And it's tempting to go in this text, well, Jesus just messed up his first attempt, so he's trying again. He tried a second time. But Jesus doesn't mess up. Are you kidding me? He doesn't make mistakes. So what's happening here is that Jesus is illustrating right in front of them, this is how you see me. They look like trees walking. They don't see clearly. So they have part of it right. He says, Peter says, we believe that you're that guy. Okay, we believe that you are the Christ. We believe that you are the guy that we've been told stories about since we were children. And what's ironic about this moment is that they are in Caesarea Philippi, a city named after Caesar who demanded that people call him Lord. And Peter says, it's not Caesar that's Lord, but it's you. But Peter's confession is only, it's only hitting part of the mark, right? Because just like the blind man, just like the blind man, Jesus it's going to be continue to help them see clearly as we go throughout this book. And in verse 31, he begins a process that we're going to see throughout the second half of Mark. It says, he began to teach them. You see that? He began to teach them. That tells us that what he's about to tell them, he hasn't told them before, right? There's a principle that we're about to see play out here, that with greater commitment comes greater intimacy, right? With greater commitment comes greater intimacy. This is true for all of us. You don't just spill your deepest, darkest secrets to people you don't know. But you talk to your spouse, your friends, your family, right? But those who are committed to you, that's who you share with. And so he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected 
of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed, and after three days, rise again. And that statement for the disciples is absolutely shocking. In fact, you get a violent rejection of that statement from Peter in a moment. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. We have to understand that statement, okay? Um, That term, Son of Man, it can mean a couple different things. Uh, One, it could mean that you are a son of a man, like a human man. The prophets were many times called a son of man because they were the son of a guy. Um, Here, it means something else. It's capitalized, number one, because it's not a description, it's a title. So the Son of Man is a title, and we are meant to think of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, it will be on the screen for you. Um, Here's what Daniel says in chapter 7 about Jesus. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him, so to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel says, far off in the future, I see one that will come from heaven, and he will be like a son of man. And when this man comes to the Ancient of Days, the Father, the Father will give him authority and power over everything. And this authority is not temporary. This authority is eternal, and his kingdom will not be defeated. He is king over everything. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, it's meant to bring that imagery to the disciples' mind. And Jesus tells them, he says, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that will have power and authority over the entire world forever. And he says, the Son of Man, the one who has authority and power, the exalted one, must suffer and die. And those two realities do not match in the disciples' minds, right? The king, the one who's in charge, must suffer and die. That the reality that the king must suffer does not make sense in the disciples' minds, right? God has ordained that this Messiah must die. If you see that word must, go ahead and circle it or underline it, Uh, Because I think it's one of the most important words in this text, that this king, the Son of Man, must. It is necessary. He has to. It is determined that he will die. And to this point in Israel, no one had really put together Daniel 7 with a text like Isaiah 53. That the Son of Man, the one who has authority, is the suffering servant. Because they thought the Messiah is supposed to be a warrior. He's a conqueror. He's a king. How is he going to defeat evil and suffering if he's dead? If he's suffering? The conquering king is supposed to win the battle to come. And Jesus would, in fact, win the battle to come. Just not the way that they thought he would. By using the word must, Jesus is saying that he is not only planning to die, but he is voluntarily doing it. It's what needs to happen. That word must, it brings about the idea of necessity. In other words, Jesus is saying, it is necessary for me to suffer and die. And we, as the people of God, have to ask the question, why? Why is it necessary? Why is there a must there? Why did this need to happen? Why did the Son of Man specifically have to die? Why did the Son of Man have to suffer? 
I'll give you two reasons. There's many, but I'm just going to give you two. Um, Number one, why did the Son of Man have to die? Number one, the death of Christ, the death of Messiah, the death of the Son of Man has always been the providential plan of God. The death of Christ has always been the providential plan of God. It was written in Psalm 22 that he must be mocked and insulted. It was written in Psalm 41 that he would suffer betrayal. It was written in Isaiah 50 that he would be struck on the face and spit on. Like we have to understand the story that Jesus is about to walk through in the second half of the book of Mark has already been told in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, which when his soul makes an offering for guilt, we have to understand that God does not predict what will happen. He makes what happen what he has already announced in his word. Jeremiah 1.12 says, Then the Lord said to me, and he says, For I am watching over my word to perform it. Does that make sense? I am watching over my word to perform it. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things, former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That we have to understand Jesus died because it was written that he would die. Jesus is not telling the disciples what might happen or what could happen here, but he is telling them what has already been declared in their scriptures would happen. That's the first reason. The second reason Jesus must suffer and die is because there is a debt that must be paid. There is a debt that must be paid, and he's the only one that can pay it. So let's say you invite me over to your house. You make me a big, juicy steak. Just saying. Um, You invite me over to your house, and I knock over a lamp. It's a glass lamp. It's really nice. Let's say it costs $100. So I knock over this $100 lamp, and it just shatters all over the floor. What happens from there? Well, there are two options at that point. You could say to me, all right, Colton, you owe me $100, which I would gladly pay. You owe me $100. Or you could say, Colton, it's okay. You're clumsy. Don't worry about it, right? And you either replace the lamp yourself or you just live with less light, right? So either I pay you for the cost of the lamp or you absorb that cost yourself. But my breaking of the lamp has created a debt between us. I, there is an owed, there is something that is owed there. But the question is, who's going to pay off that debt? Me or you? All right, let's dial that up. When someone sins against you, that creates a debt, okay? Um, let's say something, someone says something to you that is hurtful, right? It's rude, it's disrespectful. They sin against you. Or let's say they say something about your reputation, or maybe they hurt you physically. A debt has been created, Either you have taken from someone or someone has taken from you. And so option one is you make them pay, right? Maybe you try to get even. Maybe you try to, uh, you say something back or you try to hurt their reputation. They punch you, you punch back, right? I'll punch back. It's not going to hurt very much, but, you know, I can punch back. But the reality is you want to pay that debt back. So you repay evil with evil. What's option two? You absorb the debt that has been put against you. You forgive them. And there is nothing easy about forgiveness. 
Because when you want to get even, when you want to have hateful thoughts, hurtful thoughts, but you refuse in order to forgive, that hurts, right? If you've been there, that hurts. Why? Because you're absorbing the cost of that pain. You are forgiving them, and it is costing you. And so why did Jesus have to die? Because a debt has been made by us. We have wronged him. So when Jesus says, I must suffer and die, he is saying the only way I can forgive the sins of humanity is to suffer and die. Either you will have to pay the penalty of sin or I will. And I will suffer so that you don't have to. I will absorb your sin and your shame on the cross. This is necessary. This must happen. Justice demands that that debt be paid. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that you are free from that debt because Jesus has shed his blood. And this is all new for the disciples, right? And here's the thing that I, that I don't think the disciples fully grasp, and I think it's what we miss much of the time. The measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one you have sinned against, right? All sin is sin, but there is an understanding that the measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one you have sinned against. So let's say, um, let's say I'm walking and I kick a rock. Well, what's the worst that's been done in that moment? I've maybe hurt my foot and I've moved a rock from one place to another, okay? Um, let's say, though, I kick a dog. Who's got a problem with that? Yeah, ooh, right? There's no dog kickers in this church, okay? We love dogs. Hate cats, but love dogs. Um, but you kick a dog, right? You kick a dog and that dog could be afraid of you. There's consequences, right? That dog could be afraid of you from that point on. He could attack you back. Now, let's say you kick a person. Okay, um, there's some consequences to that. Um, they could kick you back, number one. Um, you could also get arrested for assault. Let's say you see a police officer on the corner and you go up to him and you <clears throat> kick him. What's that police officer going to do? Brother, you better back up, right? Let's say you kick the president of the United States. Doesn't matter what you think about him. Doesn't matter if you think he deserves to be kicked. He's still the president of the United States, right? So what's going to happen? Secret service. They're coming after you. Consider what it means that we have sinned against the holy and just God. That there is a debt that has been created. When the Bible searches for language to describe the punishment that that debt deserves, for the gravity of that debt that's been created between us and God, the word that the Bible uses to describe that debt is death. When the Bible talks about our state before God, it uses the word dead. And dead people cannot pay back their debt. There's a famous quote from Charles Spurgeon where he talks about this reality. He says, The thought is overwhelming that soon this body of mine must be a carnival for worms. That in and out of these places where my eyes are glistening, foul, foul things, the offspring of loathsomeness shall crawl. That this body must be stretched in still, cold, abject, passive death. And it must then become a noxious, nauseous thing, cast out even by those who loved me, who will say, bury my dead out of my sight. And he says, perhaps you can scarcely in the moment I can afford you appropriate the idea to yourselves. Does it not seem a strange thing 
that the one, that um, strange thing, that you who have walked to this place this morning shall be carried to your graves, that the eyes with which you now behold me shall soon be glazed in everlasting darkness, for the tongues which now just moved in song shall soon be silent lumps of clay, and that your strong and stalwart frame now standing in this place will become a loathsome thing. You will be unable to move a muscle, the brother of the worm and the sister of corruption. And then he goes on to say, he says, now endeavor as well as you can to get the idea of a dead corpse. And when you have done so, please understand that this is the metaphor employed in scripture to set forth the condition of your soul by nature. And so why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why did this must happen? Because a just God required that the debt created by our sin be paid in full. And the only one that could fulfill that debt was God himself. And so God came to die in our place. That we are saved through the work of Christ on the cross. And so when scripture searches for language to describe salvation, what word does it use? Alive. That we have been made alive in Christ. And verse 32 in Mark 8 says, he said this plainly. He's no longer talking in parables. He says, I'm going to die and I'm not going to stay dead. And Peter hears this, and Peter rejects it. He says he took him aside, he took the king aside, and began to rebuke him. And but says in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter in this moment. Any plan of God without my suffering is satanic. Think about it. Satan has already tried to play this card with him, right? This card's already been played by Satan himself. Jesus has heard this before. Go to uh, Matthew 4.8. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Matthew 4.8. This is after uh, Jesus is baptized. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the enemy, by Satan. And this is the third temptation. It says in verse 8 in Matthew 4, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So he takes him to a mountain and he says, look at all that I can give you. Look at all the authority, the power, the glory that I I can make you king over the entire world. All you have to do is get down on your knees and worship me. But Jesus knows that his mission is to suffer and die. And he also knows that there is a day coming where he will stand in front of his disciples and he will say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what Satan is proposing is I can get you there without suffering. It's the very same temptation that Peter is offering. It's the very same temptation. Skip to glory. Don't go down the road of suffering. So Jesus tells his disciples, no, this must happen. And so when Peter rebukes him, he says, I've heard that before. That's from the enemy. That's what must not happen. And so this leads Jesus to make a stark declaration. You have to read these next few verses in the context of what just happened with Jesus and Peter. So it says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, Peter, if you want to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever uh, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
So Jesus wants his disciples to understand that if they want to go where he's going, if they want to live life as a disciple of him, if they want to be a disciple of Christ, you can't just skip to glory. You can't just skip to the end. That on this road of discipleship, there is a denial that must happen. I mean, look again at verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here's what he's saying. At the heart of a disciple is a displaying of a denying of yourself and a taking up of your cross. That in every believer, there is a denied self and there is a new self. Scripture will sometimes talk about this as the flesh and the spirit, right? There is a denied self and there is a new self. And the denied self must be crucified. That part of us that wants to enjoy things other than Christ, that part of us that wants to worship other things, that wants to reject God or to be apathetic about the things of God, that part of us must be put to death. That the new self looks at the old self and goes, no, you're dead. You're crucified. And he says in 35, forever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the description of the selves. That one self aims to save its life in this world. That self loves this world. It loves the comforts of this world. It enjoys the sin of this world. It enjoys idols in this world above all else. That's the self that must be crucified and killed. The other self that would lose his life in order to save it, that self experiences Jesus and his gospel as more valuable, more satisfying than anything else in this world. It's to look at Jesus and declare, you are better than anything else. There's nothing that compares to you. And so for the one that has truly seen Jesus, for the one that has truly heard Jesus, for that person, their hopes and their desires are aimed at Jesus in his glory and nothing else because he's better than everything else. There's a guy named Lucius Septimius Severus, who is not a Harry Potter character. Um, He was a wealthy Roman emperor from the second century. He said this when he died. He says, I have been everything, and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. If you chase what the world says will save you, If you try to find satisfaction in money, if you try to find the purpose of your design and comforts and status and building our own little kingdoms, you will lose your life. But if you see him as better, if he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, you may lose some things, but you're going to gain him. And he's far better. And here's the thing. Um... There are no victims in the church. What do I mean by that? Um, In Mark 10, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he wants to be part of his group. And Jesus says, okay, get rid of all your stuff and come follow me. And the guy can't do it. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, but he wants, and he wants this world more than he wants Jesus. And so Peter watches all this happen. This guy is who Peter wants to be. He's rich, Young, he's a ruler, he's got power. And Peter sees this guy walk away, and he says to Jesus in Mark 10, 28, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. We've left everything and followed you. 
Jesus is like, like this guy who was rich, he was young, he had power. He couldn't do it, Jesus, but I did. I've lost everything and I've followed you. And Jesus responds in verse 29. He responds, I think, with compassion. He says, truly I say to you, this is Mark 10, 29. There is no one who has left house or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He's essentially saying, Peter, you're not a victim. You're not a victim. Life with nothing but Jesus is better than having everything but Jesus. And so for us, I think it's tempting sometimes to, to, to I think it's normal for some of us in here to feel the weight of what we've lost. That we've, we have, for many of us in here, walked down the road of suffering for the sake of Christ. And sometimes on that road, we want to stop and we want to get off because it's too much. It hurts. I can't absorb the cost of forgiving people any more than I already have. You ever felt like that? And here, Peter says, look, I've left everything and I've followed you. And Jesus says, I know. I know. And you will have your reward. He's worth it. He's better than anything in this world. And when you are tempted to get off that road of suffering and being a disciple of Christ, you look to him and be reminded of why you're there. Why you're there. He ends with verse 38. He says, whoever is ashamed of me, this is a classic coffee cup verse, by the way. Um, whoever is ashamed of me, I'm kidding, uh, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man, he uses that phrase again, be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That he references that future when he comes on the clouds in that day of judgment. And he says, if you're ashamed of me then, then I will be ashamed of you. If you're ashamed of me now, then I will be ashamed of you then. If you can't say yes to the wedding ring, right? If on your wedding day, you're standing in front of everyone and the officiant uh, says, okay, for better or for worse, and you're like, whoa, I never said worse, right? If you can't say yes to the wedding ring and all that comes with that, if you can't say yes to that, you're not going on the honeymoon. If you're not willing to deny the part of yourself that wants this world more than Jesus, then at the end of all things, and we need to hear this, he will deny you. He will deny you. If you're ashamed of him now, he will, he will deny you then. That Jesus walked down the road of suffering and the question for all of us is not, is, the question for all of us is, do you see him as worthy to follow? And the answer to that question is dependent on how you see the other question. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he someone who gave a lot of good advice? Or is he your savior who paid the debt that you could not and now you are free? And so whatever sufferings happen in this life, we look to it and we go, God will sustain me. God will lead me. And God will give me joy in the midst of that suffering. And I will look to him because he's better. He's better than anything else.